Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. I'm here with Emily Jane Fox. Hello, Emily. Hello. Good morning, Los Angeles time. What a morning it is. You've already received a call first thing this morning. And who was that call from? Well, it's a it's a big day in High World. Michael Cohen has been released from prison. Michael Cohen. And Michael Cohen, a, a Hive favorite, a, a longtime subject of mine. And he is now officially home after serving uh, just a little bit more than a year in federal prison in Otisville, New York. And he, I spoke to him this morning, uh, not long after he got home. And I think it's been a real trip. I think uh, going to prison is, is what it is. Um, and I think coming home from prison is a whole other animal. I think that uh, for the last month or so, he's been in solitary confinement. And it was in part because... Uh, he was quarantining when the Department of Justice decided that people in prisons and, and the prison in Otisville decided that its, it's uh, inmates were not safe to be there because of the coronavirus. Uh, they started quarantining people, and the way they did it, at least for Michael Cohen, was that he was put in solitary confinement. Now, while he was quarantining there, the Department of Justice and Bureau of Prison uh, changed the way that they we're going to let people out. So Michael for a time was supposed to get out at the beginning of May and then the department of justice rolled that back. And so he just stayed in solitary confinement because he went back into the regular prison population. Then he would have to quarantine again once he was eventually going to be let out for another 14 days. And that's a long time to be in solitary confinement. He was quarantined within the quarantine. That's exactly he had, right. He had several layers of quarantining. That's, That's exactly right. Unbelievable. The psychological impact of being completely alone for over a month. Yeah, seems I think I think it's profound. like twenty three hours in your cell. You only get eight or so minutes on the phone every week. And uh, he said his body hurts and uh, he is very happy to be home with his family and I think we'll we'll see what happens from here. I mean, after Paul Manafort got released from prison, now Michael Cohen is released from prison. Michael Flynn, Flynn looks like he will never spend time in prison after after pleading guilty and then not pleading guilty, and then the Department of Justice dropping the case. I don't think that anyone who was involved in the Russia investigation is currently in prison. Roger Stone has not yet been sentenced, but I would imagine that the president is on his way to thinking about at least thinking about a pardon. Uh, it's crazy when you think about if you told either one of us two years ago that right now there would be no one with any real consequences, lasting consequences for their involvement in the Russia investigation or their dealings with, with President Donald Trump. I don't know that either of us would have believed you. 
it's amazing that when Michael Cohen went into prison, prison there was a Russiagate. There was something called Russiagate, and now he's emerged from prison, and now there's Obamagate. The entire story has been reverse-engineered or attempted to be reverse-engineered by President Trump with his um, conspiracy that Obama tried to take him down in some kind of a very hazy, vague way that has not never been explained fully. But um, and it's such a uh, you know it's transparently a political election year uh, distraction to both energize um, his base and to kind of take attention away from the thing that is consuming everybody's attention, which is the actual crisis in front of us and the mismanagement of it. I just was tweeting this a minute ago, and I'm sorry I have to say that I tweeted something uh, as a part of our, our conversation. You know what? But, I'm fine uh, if you say that. What I hate is the construction so-and-so took to Twitter. <laughs> so as long as you say, yeah. I didn't take to Twitter, I, t- I, I tweeted, that's fine. Twitter. It's not a I, thing. I hate that construction. Well, anyway, I, and go I, I'm going to avoid it. But I just asked the question, is Obamagate still a thing? Or was that just last week? Was and it ever a thing? No, it's never, it was just, no, it was was never a, a thing. It was just like, a you know, is it still a storyline, even whether it's true or not? Uh, is the president still trying to make Obama get happen? Right. And so saying. I think the mainstream media has already been like, oh, forget about it. Ridiculous. And then the right wing media is going to stay on top of it because it uh, appeals to some of their uh, to Trump's base. If you were to trend to forecast the GOP, I would say that. Obamagate will go strong for them through the election. I don't think it's going to be the top buzzword from now until November 3rd, but it's going to be part of the lexicon. No doubt. It works for him, for for his segment of the population. I wonder, I have not done this because I would like to keep some shred of my sanity, but if you were to continue to watch Fox News, how many times it's been mentioned this week versus last week and how that compares to next week and the weeks going forward, I wonder how strongly it's staying part of their conversation. Let's make a plan to review that and uh, do some analysis. I'm going to draft you to do that. I'll draft. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll take up the job. Muck. I'm going to go investigate that. Come back with a report next week. You're a about, brave man, Joe. Yeah, it's ugly, but somebody has to do it. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about it is it once again goes back to Trump's instincts uh, for creating narratives, um, and this one works, I think, for a reason. I I was talking to Obama's former political strategist, David Pluff, maybe a month and a half ago, when I asked him, hey, is Obama going to be a factor in this election? Is he, you know, how how might he help Joe Biden um, and get people excited? And at the time, Pluff was saying, you know, I don't think he'll be much of a factor. Usually ex-presidents aren't, you know, big deciding factors for voters. But suddenly... Uh, you know, with Biden being absent, either strategically or because he can't break through in the media, Obama's been very forward. You know, he was just, has this commencement speech he gave to graduates last year, uh, last week, um, in a TV show produced by LeBron James. I, it was interesting because one, it was a great idea, and I thought this is something regularly a president might do. Like, why wasn't Trump doing that? You know, he that he doesn't think volumes. like that. Right. But then what Obama said was so compelling. It was um, he was saying, hey, listen, the world has been changed. It's easy to be frightened by what you're going out into. 
unbelievable economic devastation, unemployment. You've got a, a, a pandemic out there. But he's saying, you know, it's 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 torn back the curtain and shown that the people who ordinarily you would think knew what they were doing, who are in charge, don't really know what's going on. And he says, this is an opportunity for you to go out and reinvent the world as you would like it to be. And, and it kind of jived a little bit with the story in The Times over the weekend, which is about Biden himself is out there consulting with Warren and, and Bernie Sanders. Hey, we got to come up with a platform that's radical. This is an opportunity to reinvent things. So, well, you know, for whatever it's worth, that was powerful. That was powerful rhetoric from Obama. And well, it's also it's interesting the way that he he did not mention President Trump by name, but yeah. it was it was not obvious. Yeah. Even veiled that he was referring to the president not being in charge of his own ship, which is unusual for a former president to even come close to jabbing a sitting president. Obviously, we were in the most unusual times, and I think that that it was a very effective and moving criticism, but also, as you said, the the message for young people going forward. I, I think that the former President Obama will be an incredibly helpful surrogate going forward, but it makes me long for a candidate himself or herself, more importantly, right. uh, sure. who will inspire that on their own. It's a tough pill to swallow when you say the best thing about a current candidate is their former boss being a surrogate for them. That doesn't say much about about the current candidate. And I agree with that. Um, Although maybe in this stage of the cycle, and this is something we've talked about in the past, and I, you know, whether or not Biden's strategy of of staying in the background right now is actually a strategic benefit, or whether, you know, because you're, I know you're, you believe that he's not energizing uh, voters enough and that he needs to spend every waking minute doing that up until yes. the election. But we're in very st- strange context here, right? We, and because of the pandemic and because he's, you know, up till recently, it's worked because Trump has shot himself in the foot over and over again. Now Trump has unleashed this Obamagate thing. And other kinds in 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 the outrage of trying to undo the Russiagate thing, which has lots of truth to it <laughs> that we know, sure. right? Um, he's using all of this to kind of smokescreen uh, things, so it may be time for Biden to come out. And I did see like a little um, Instagram ad that popped up on my screen recently. Be the first to know about Biden's VP pick. Sign here. You know what I mean? Like sign up. Get did your you email and roll. No, I didn't. I, I mean, it's already you popping wanna be, up on you my screen. You want to be last to know? Okay. Well, I I figure it'll come up on my New York Times it'll find news you. alert. It'll find me. Yeah. yeah. I, f- I think I'll probably figure it out. But I mean, you know, and that's, you know, that's the big, the next big move. And maybe that will mark the moment when Biden is going to come out from the bunker and he will appear as a package deal, right, with whoever he has chosen. And there's all this speculation. Is it Amy Klobuchar? Is it, you know— Gonna be Should we start a Abrams. pool? All right. So I, you know, I'm we didn't talk s- about this before. So I'm putting you on the spot and I okay, actually no, don't do have it, an sure. answer. Yeah. Maybe, maybe here's this because I don't have an answer yet. Next week, come ready with your pick. We're going to, we're going to make a bet. I don't know what the terms of the bet yet are. And I don't know if it's yeah. illegal to gamble like this. I have no idea, 
but we're going to make a we're bet. We're doing it. We're being, re- we're recording ourselves. I'm ready. Doing something potentially um, illegal, but hey, you know. We're the dumbest we're, criminals there ever, ever was. Well, you, um, well. I'm the dumbest criminal. You. I'm taking, I'm taking full credit <laughs> for this. Um, but the bet is going to be no low stakes, but I'm excited for it. Okay, well, I'm high gonna, stakes intellectually. I'm going to um, consult with my Vegas odds makers, and I'll be back to you next week. Great. I think I think uh, this is a real tune in event. Speaking of tune in events, Joe, yeah. you have a great interview coming up. I can't wait to hear it. Tell me all about it. I'm really excited about this interview because the subject, uh, one of the su- two people I spoke with uh, this week, John Chu the director of Crazy Rich Asians, which was like a smash hit um, last year. Global global hit, great movie. And his editor, Myron Kirstein, who's sort of his kind of wingman in his creative projects, um, are both on to talk about what's been going on in Hollywood and with their own project, which was In the Heights, the Lin-Manuel Miranda movie that was supposed to come out this summer. I got to see a rough cut of it a few months ago. It's, it's unbelievably great. I mean, it's like a joyful, you know, musical with dancing and singing and incredibly attractive leads. Um, I saw the play years ago. I mean, probably 10 million years ago now. And I'm so excited to see it turned into a movie. The play was such a fantastic celebration. I can't wait to see the, the movie. Well, that's the, you know, and the joy of it is something I think we could all probably use right now. I mean, it would have been great if it had come out this summer, say Mm. on Netflix or name your streaming thing. I would have watched it. I would have paid a little extra to watch, you know, a brand new movie pop up on my- In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. But they made the decision to push it to next summer because they want to roll it out in the theaters. I mean, and one of the things we talk about in this interview is that uh, you know, John Chu had the option to put Crazy Rich Asians on a streaming service instead of going to the theaters, but he bet on the theaters and he won big. It's so interesting to think about. I mean, we talk about this a lot in my house because um, I live with someone who is very much in the middle of Hollywood. And uh, the the tastes for everything, I think, will change post-corona, even when there is a vaccine, though we have no idea when that will be. I think people are going to get used to the idea of watching blockbusters at home. Look how well Trolls did, right? That movie just exploded at home and it gives, I'm sure, a a lot of theater owners pause and studios lots to think about. Um, I, for one, I love going to the movies. I also love watching movies at home. And if you told me a theater was never going to exist again, I would say, okay. It doesn't really affect my life so much. I think that the way we talk about it here, and and I'm very curious what you think and what you talk about in your interview, is that um, there will be movie theaters that only offer like the Marvel movie, right? And it'll be maybe like a a Disney experience to go and see it, and there will be a Disney store at the movie theater. Um, But you're not necessarily going to have a movie theater that's showing the Marvel movie and the, the indie pick and... The rom-com that you have now, that that mix, that a theater will instead be spaced seating and showing, you know, four theaters showing the Avengers rather than every movie theater packed and showing a variety of different movies. And we and we get into that a little bit in the conversation. Exactly. And uh, before uh, we cue it up here, I just want to 
alert you to the back end of this interview. I ask uh, John Chu about the future of theaters and whether or not how important they are. And he has some really just eloquent um, commentary about that that I want to cue you into, and I hope that you'll listen to because um, it, he's, it was very moving, frankly, and uh, I think people are going to enjoy this interview. So let's listen to it. Without further ado, John Chu, director of Crazy Rich Asians and forthcoming In the Heights with his editor, Myron Kirstein. Roll em. Uh, we're here with the director, John Chu, of Crazy Rich Asians, and uh, his right-hand man and editor, uh, Myron Kirstein. Welcome, guys. Thank you. What's going on? It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to have you here uh, under these bizarre circumstances that we're all in nowadays. Um, you know, I was thinking back several months ago I, uh, when I first met John Chu uh, in an office, a bustling office in New York where you were editing uh, your forthcoming film, In the Heights, and there were all yeah. these people together in an office, <laughs> hanging out, sitting, looking at editing screens and talking Not just about... together, stuffed together in small rooms. Yeah, small right. Rooms. Yeah. Which is basically, you know, that's how, how business gets done uh, nowadays. But, um, and I also was lucky enough to see sort of a rough cut of the film, and I won't be giving anything away by saying it's like, uh, wow, what a colorful, beautiful, musical, joyful film that you made called In the Heights. For those who don't know, it is Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, first musical, In the Heights, which I guess is partially based on his own you know, upbringing and sort of um, Puerto Rican areas of uh, New York. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, there was, I was thinking this summer is going to be, you know, a big musical blockbuster in theaters, as you did too. So that's changed. That's changed. Yes. Yes. Tell me how you learned that things were going to be different for you and this film is going to be pushed uh, to next year. Um, well, I learned, um, I mean, it, this is always a discussion, you know, right when I, we were mixing the music when, and the whole movie, when, um, when the NBA shut down and Trump made his speech and, Tom Hanks got it and the world was crumbling in all around us. So we were in the heart of it in New York and um, my family had just moved back to LA. So I had to quickly figure out, am I going back to LA? Cause I don't want these airlines to shut down and get stuck without my family during this time. Yeah. Um, knowing that babysitters weren't happening, school wasn't happening anymore. So um, the temperature went up real quick. Um, and so we had to sort of assess where we were. And by doing that and realizing, oh, the companies that were doing our coloring or doing our visual effects were shutting down already and not even allowing their workers to go in or travel anymore, uh, we realized it was very serious. So I sort of saw it as, um, oh, this is, our movie's going to be at risk because we were, we, we were tight anyway of, of when we could finish and when the movie was coming out. Um, so it was a long discussion from that day one um of uh of is this going to come out during the summer and what our movie theater is going to be at that point um right. and then we decided ultimately over a phone call a couple phone calls probably like uh several weeks later uh, we did not make decisions up up front and can you give me some insight into like i mean nobody knows anything that's one yeah. thing you know you just there's no telling uh when theaters will be open again but 
But we do know that other films that were slated for the summer made different decisions, right? Mm-hmm. To go mm-hmm. out on Netflix or to come out on a streaming service or like Trolls, you know, I, I watched that with my children recently. It was 20 bucks. Yep. I'm sure that, you know, maybe they made their money. I think they probably did okay. But mm-hmm. like, but you sort of, I know that famously you uh, are very dedicated to having your film seen in the theater. At least you were with Crazy Rich Asians, right? Is that similar yeah. to here or yeah i mean listen i love streaming i i we were watching all the time i think great amazing quality stuff obviously happens on streaming um for me we made this movie to be on the big screen uh, a musical of this scope of this size um you know we shot it uh anamorphic uh, so it could span the whole screen uh the way the colors are the way you experience this as a community uh, where people should be singing along, dancing in the aisles. Like that is something, uh, it's not, again, not all my movies, but this movie in particular, Crazy Rich Asians in particular, had a very specific purpose of getting people together. Um, that is part of the experience, not just the movie itself. And Myron and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, how movies affected us when we were young and its place in our culture now of getting people out of their homes, out of uh, out of their cell phones, um, and um, and together to be with each other. So uh, for this one in particular, that was a big a big thing for us. Of course, you know, with Warner Brothers, they have HBO Max, which is coming, um, and so there's always temptations to put it over there. But obviously, that was also not ready yet. It's about to come out, but at that time wasn't fully and 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 in the end of the day that was not the experience that um i particularly wanted our movie to be and i I know lynn agreed with that so right um yeah so and he was involved in the discussions i take it because was he is he a producer on it or yeah um we were we a lot of us are we have some great producers scott sanders lynn of course kiara who's our writer and bregman who's done a lot of uh movies uh and so all of us sort of got together with the studio because the studio sort of laid out the different scenarios for us. They were very actually open to how we wanted to do it because they also did not have the answers. And it wasn't one conversation that came to the conclusion. It was, let's have like three or four different conversations as every week is a different story that that is happening with where we are at. Even to this day, they're not, I think it's like, we still don't quite fully know what is going to exactly. be happening in these theaters. So, um, so you never know. But uh, yeah. but that's where we, we landed. That that next year for us, because it's coming out um, June sixteenth of next year, uh, was best for us because, you know, when we did Crazy Rich Asians, um, there was a whole ecosystem that had to build. Um, the, the movie, the the book was big, but but people didn't really know our stars yet we had to really make the movie stars. And so you have to get them in magazines, you have to get them in articles, you have to get them on those talk shows, daytime, late night, all that stuff. So you're building an ecosystem around these actors who, and you make them stars. And in a way it's almost bigger than the movie itself because after this movie, you're creating a new lane for these actors in Crazy Rich Asians, it was all Asians um, from all around the world. Uh, and in, in the Heights, it's uh, mostly Latinx actors, young, um, some vets, but 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 really putting them on the map so that their next movie, that's not with us, uh, they're a star in that movie, um, and that that is the real power of when you make a movie with a studio that has 
that, that has that kind of representation and you get to cast people who never got the chance to, to be in those roles um, because they're always the side characters are always playing stereotypes. And this one, they really get to blossom. And that is the bigger lasting legacy of these, these movies, Crazy Rich Asians, and I believe In the Heights will have that. And that takes time. That takes uh, a whole mechanism of a company getting spending tens of millions of dollars getting behind that. So that right, was also yeah. a big part of my my decision to. And I to, can see that yeah. because In the Heights is um, the cast is all these really young, beautiful, incredibly talented you know actors and actresses, many of whom you've never seen before, and this was going to be their yeah. splash debut, and you need to build around that. I was just talking 100%. to somebody. Um, I was talking to somebody at Netflix yesterday, similar to what you just said. They were saying, you know, listen, we're long, far as advanced as anyone in, in Hollywood. We can't tell you what's going to happen next, you know, in terms of, you know, how are you going to adapt to where we're at right now, you know, with the studio shut down, but, um, and nobody able to work. And when will be, we be able to work? You also have a, um, some sort of production deal, right? Was it with Apple? Uh, um, I, we have it with uh, uh, Fox Disney. Fox so, Disney, sorry. Uh, so it's uh, Hulu, Disney Plus, uh, Freeform, FX, all those those companies. So yeah, with 20th century. You, yeah. Have you? Has anybody contact? Do you know? Are there conversations around um, trying to figure out how they can have productions again? You know, there are de- there are a lot of conversations. I am not fully privy to it to those yeah. conversations. Um, we are, you know, for us, we're just trying to make sure the scripts are in place so we can go shoot. I was supposed to go shoot a pilot for ABC, um, in the summer. And so we are instead focusing on developing the other scripts, making sure it's all rock solid while we figure out how to even shoot, um, in the next six months. So that's, but I'm not privy to all the union conversations that I'm sure every, uh, every union's having uh, for their for whether it's their actors or the directors or the anybody. I think there's such a huge responsibility that no one wants to put anyone in danger, and so right. um, they have to protect. Uh, put those, put, uh, you know, the big companies are probably let's go shoot, let's go shoot, let's go shoot. Um, yeah. And uh, but I know you know a lot of people who even run those companies are you know they are they are good people, they are human beings, and they don't want to um, they don't want to rush it as well. Yeah. Well, just like we were talking about with people, when the good weather comes out, people want to get out. I know the, you know, the creatives want to get out there and make their stuff. You know, I mean, Myron, you were really at the, at the outset of directing your first um, TV show, right? I mean, uh, or an episode of a show. And suddenly that was all put on the back burner. Um, Were you yeah, uh, I think were you in Canada or something? Where were you shooting? <clears throat> yeah, I was shooting in Vancouver. Uh, actually, I was shooting the show that I had edited the pilot for with John. The show called Home Before Dark, which just came out on Apple Plus. And uh, I was I actually left New York um, while John was finishing the mix uh, for the film, and um, I was ten days into prep and two days into the shoot, and they shut it all down. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, so now, yeah, now we're in this situation where um, I just I heard uh, from somebody else I know who's in the film business 
you know, uh, I shouldn't say the name of the actress he was talking about, famous actresses, proposing, oh, I'm going to take a crew up to Maine and we're going to quarantine for two weeks and we're going to and we're going to we're going to make a film happen anyway. You know, um, does that seem plausible to you? No. I mean, right. I mean, I don't think this micro bubble idea of um, quarantining everybody for two weeks and then shooting is a reality because one person gets sick and then, you know, there's lawsuits. And I mean, right. I don't know, maybe someone someone's going to do it. Someone's crazy enough to do it, but I don't think it's a reality. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you bring up a good point about um, sort of the bigger conglomerate, the big the studios making movies is different than independent people making movies. You know, there's so much money against your production, so you're you have insurance, you have all this, you know, stuff, and if anything goes wrong, what well, who what insurance company is going to cover any of that stuff? I don't know, right. unless you have very, I don't know, I don't know how. I guess it's up to that. Of, 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 at that level, um, there's so many other legal uh, ramifications with that. I think a crew can just go and shoot anything. I mean, whatever. Like, yeah. But is that safe? I don't know. Who knows? I think the testing is going to be such a huge part of it. Um, you know, there, Ted um, Sarandos from uh, Netflix wrote that article in LA Times about how they're doing it in uh, South Korea and other parts of the world where some, and some countries testing is very available so they can do it one way and other places testing is not as available uh, but they have less cases so they do it another way uh, but some of those things are very interesting like they um every four hours the crew has to stop and wash their hands every three or four hours like that. Wow. every morning everyone's getting their temperature taken um and they have a doctor on set and they're getting so and of course they're the quarantine before and then uh, so, uh, before they even there and there's no guests there's nothing no in and out you're like there so yeah. who knows like what how that all pans out but um i guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah i well i've thought about that you know there and there are supposed you know there are films being made in sweden and these other yeah. countries where um and i don't know how much of an option that is for you and whatever you're doing but um you know, but at the end of the day, your audience is trapped at home, <laughs> you know, so that's like yeah. uh, the inability to put it in a theater. But, you know, uh, yeah. these streaming networks like Apple and Disney Plus and Netflix, they they ha they need content. Right. Totally. Um, I think the big the also the other myth of movie theaters is that they're packed all the time, um, whereas actually <laughs> like Monday through Friday, their capacity is less than 50 percent at their most busy. So if they are, so by maxing out a theater by 50%, you know, it'll affect opening weekends for sure. But if you're the only movie and there's only new movie and you have more theater, more screens, then maybe that can compensate for those things. I think that's what's going to be interesting about seeing Tenet from Warner Brothers, seeing Mulan from uh, Disney. How do they take, uh, how do they use the lack of movies to help compensate uh, to give them more screens to maybe possibly match up. Then the question becomes how comfortable is, is are, are the people at home going to be to go out to a theater? Maybe places will be and other places will not be as. Uh, yeah. But a majority of the money made by uh, big tentpole movies are uh, are the big cities. So that th these are all the questions that we keep sort of, again, not my job, but uh, yeah, yeah. swirling around. Well, it offers a really fascinating kind of um, ethical slash political um, 
choice for the for the theaters because there are people gathering in this country right now. Yeah. And some people don't like it. You know, you see on Twitter or on the news, you know, videos yeah. of people just converging at beaches and yeah. even in LA, right? Totally. Um, and by so, the way, just, just and, and Myron can probably speak to this too, like we are, you know, Myron is in charge of the editorial crew and I'm in charge of the movie. And so we, as leaders of these people who have to come in and they're going to, they're, they're team players. They're going to come and, and help you make your movie. Like that's what we were born to do. That's why we're in this business. That's why we've survived in this business. And if we ask them to show up, they're going to show up. And so we, as leaders, what I really grew to realize is we actually have to be more responsible as the leaders to help protect them. Um, you know, when a company that has paid for all of this is breathing down your neck to go, 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 don't stop. Don't fly back to LA. Keep making the movie. You only have three more weeks. Don't worry. It'll get better. And we'll assess at that point. Meanwhile, our crew who is working on the, you know, on the mix or whatever, their kids are being sent home. So they don't have babysitters and they're, they're struggling emotionally to figure out how are they going to get their next job if this good thing goes down, let alone take care of the kid who's at home and be here and putting themselves at risk and could potentially put their parents at risk who are also now moved into their house. Like there are all these questions that came up literally while we are. Uh, and, 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 and when the federal government's not making those decisions for you, uh, and at that point, the uh, states had not made those decisions for you, uh, that responsibility fell on us. Um, and, uh, and that was hard. That was hard to, well, it was both hard and empowering to realize, oh, we can be those people to help our crew um, and instead of just making this movie. So that was the, and, and, and again, Myron, you can speak to some of, on your side, you were at that point, now you were both part of our crew, but also leading his own crew in Vancouver. So that's <laughs> more difficult. And the idea to shut down your production at that point must have been very difficult. Yeah, there was even debate. Um, there, was, you know, there was uh, four editors on the new TV show, and I was a uh, also a, a producer this season. And they're like, "We just want to work one more week." It's like you can't work one more day. You have to go home. But at the same time, nobody really wanted to make that decision <laughs> because there was so much unknown out there. And I was like, "I don't think you guys should be sitting in crowded offices together." Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> you know that your crew in New York working on the film is also um, uh, trying to uh, finish the film for John. And you're saying, well, what's the safety um, there with, you know, five people on a mixed stage, you know, and eight people in an edit room. So it's um, it was it was um, it was unnerving. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot of that's a big uh, a lot of decision you know, to put on a, on a director who's already got a million decisions on their head. Suddenly it's like your whole crew's health and well-being. I mean, I guess, uh, and half know. of your crew wants you to is like be the leader and keep things moving. And the other half of the crew is like, protect us. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is critics at large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of the Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) So the job that you do, Myron, editing, can plausibly be done alone, right? And I know that you've now moved your entire editing operation into your living room. Is that... uh, What's going on nowadays? And you're you're still working on on uh, in the heights. Well, I, I was up to uh, uh, about a week ago. Uh, so the good news is, um, if there's any good news to take from this craziness, is um, you know because we had a little bit more time on our hands. Uh, John asked us to look at, um, or asked me rather, to uh, look at a few more things for the film. So Warner Brothers granted us a the ability to set up a editing machine i use an avid and um and off to the races and strangely enough um with technology these days you could do things pretty seamlessly even working remotely with john was a uh, was pretty interesting and, and fun and, and we were able to um shorten the film a little bit and um you know uh yeah just polish a little bit more and um and that was great. It was uh, yeah. it was actually a lifesaver um, just to keep my sanity, just to be working on something, but also um, to have a little bit more income um, when suddenly um, everything had stopped. Um, yeah, uh, this is one of the interesting things. So two two issues there. One, keeping one's sanity. Uh, is something for everybody to deal with right now. Everybody's used to being on the go and having their outlet and doing their thing. And especially in filmmaking, you're so used to being around lots of other people, and it's partly a management job um, of directing people, right? So, um, but Myron, you were telling me recently that, um, you know, some editors are being offered jobs to, like, uh, edit together graduation videos for, like, uh, people who could afford to have such a thing done, right? I mean, people are finding other ways to, you know, occupy themselves with the skills they have. I mean... Um, what else, what are you guys hearing out there from people in your business? How are they, what are the, how are they proposing to adapt right now? I mean, are they just having to sit on the beach until this is over or, uh, what, what other things are you hearing out there about, you know, while people are sitting, what are they doing creatively with themselves? I think it's really hard for people. I think it's really hard because creativity takes space and time that are, are hard to, um, sort of describe, but like 30 minute sessions in between trying to teach your kids math. I uh, I, I think it's just, um, it's almost a waste of time. You can't be creative in 30 second uh, or 30 minute sort of bursts. Um, I think it took time for people to have their conversation with their families and figure out what the schedule will be. Um, I think now it's a lot more settled than maybe it was back then although there are different pressures now. Um, but I think that that half of it was like, what is happening right now? Getting used to the rhythm of 
being with your family. And many of us, you know, go shoot for five months and are away for a long time or edit for eight months, six months, and then come back to their families. And so they're, we, our families are used to a rhythm. It's, but that, and, and so when you get into that, you actually can survive it. But when it suddenly gets disrupted and then you don't know the lines anymore, I think the, the defining the schedule was a huge hurdle that everyone had to get through. Then comes the, what jobs are going to be available. Then comes the worry of actual survival of um, like, like Myron was saying, like, is he going on to another job? What's, what is that next job? Who's shooting? Like that is very scary. We go from job to job. That's what our, even as a director, you're only as good as your last movie. And I could go out of work tomorrow for five years. Like I have no idea. So, um, you know, again, our families are used to that, but this is more uncertain than even those times. So I worry about, yeah, our music editors. I worry about our uh, VFX people and the things that we know that are such an essential part of movie making. And yet they are also dependent on a process of production that is moving. And when that, when that, and, and, and it's, it comes and flows. So one comes and the next one comes. So if you miss one, there's always another train. But when all trains have stopped, I think that is very worrisome. And so, so I know a lot of people for writers, great. Like we're having writer rooms right now. Um, we're having meetings, we're developing stuff. So I think a lot of, and I actually think a lot of the other creative people in other aspects of production are now pitching things actually, or coming to me and we're, we're coming up with ideas and, and things like that. So um, right. I think people are just expanding kind of what they do, or at least more open to other avenues that that are not in their lane necessarily at that at this moment. Right. This is a time of incredible. Uh, there's going to be a lot of scripts around when you guys get back into production. I imagine. Um, yeah. Yes. A lot of a lot of. Well, it's interesting. The hard the the thing that puts more pressure on it is that there were already a lot of scripts because everyone was preparing for this writers' um, strike that was oh, wow. supposed to happen in right. May. So everyone was already like getting surplus of scripts and getting everything ready for that possible pause. So now it's like they have a sur already have a surplus. So are they going to put more into that or not? And I think that that's, but we also have a different world. Our stories don't, I, I don't know if you guys felt, but watching stuff on uh, movies or television when people are in parties and close yeah. together, it makes you feel mm -hmm. uncomfortable all of a sudden. And I never yeah. expected mm -hmm. that actually. And so, it changes the way you make movies because you know your audience is going to react differently, I guess. Well, I, I kept wondering whether or not, you know, we don't know how long this will go on and we don't know what the timetable of it is, but let's just say it went on for another year and that it was just opening next summer, just theoretically. I mean, it's going to be hard. Every movie that you're ever going to see is going to have to have some reference to this in order for it to be tethered to reality. I mean, <laughs> which is sort of, Horrible when you think about it. But, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, let's talk about for a minute. Um, you know what you're seeing as creative adaptations out there. You know, I was thinking, okay, green screens and animation are going to be a big thing for the next six months. I mean, maybe there'll be tons of animation because that'll be the one thing you can do with a kind of networked team, right? Rather than having to have people on site on site. Or maybe you're seeing other things out there. What are, what are you guys noticing in terms of creative, you know, positive creative uh, adaptations out there in the world? 
Well, the SNL at home, um, uh, the couple of the episodes that they did, I thought was was pretty inventive and interesting, and and you know some of it worked, some of it didn't, but uh, was was pretty funny. And yeah. and you know I've seen a lot of um, you know actors making their own videos with their own um, uh, costumes and uh, adapting things. Uh, I forget who the artist is, uh, John Mino, who's doing the Sound of Music. Uh, reinterpretations of sound of music and um, and um, you know I just think there's an opportunity to not not stopping you know to keep creating something you know right. and and and, um, and <laughs> for that matter keep people employed there is editors cutting that SNL at home and making graphics for it and uh, the, you know um, so uh, I'm hopeful that something good will come out of all this. You know, I was uh, John just recently did the USC uh, uh, commencement um, uh, last week, and they were saying how a bunch of the students um, were being very inventive and uh, coming up with their thesis projects. And I, I don't know, there's something really interesting about that. And, and right. I They'll be at the Vanguard. These students you talked to, John, they're going to be in the Vanguard of adapting to this. I mean, they're already mm -hmm. probably sort of have it built in with the social media video and are, you know, instantly see how this can happen. I mean, um, yeah, suddenly their skill sets of knowing how to do stuff all at home, all by themselves as a one man show is, is going to be very, very valuable. Yeah. Um, I mean, we see it even like, it's funny, even on like the Disney sing-alongs, like the, that's so fun to see uh, yeah. people at their, at their homes to see uh, how inventive a star really is when they don't have all the production value. We're just yeah. watching the voice, the finale of the voice. And they all are in their backyard with like hue <laughs> lights in different colors. And like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they all, it, it's very interesting to see how, uh, how these production these you know big shows are actually doing doing it so um, right and, and there's still a charm you know it's really charming to see somebody try to be a star at home and and on a on a on a voice competition show that we we are so we are so used to and we're used to seeing the audience in the big production and yeah, now yeah. you just literally hear their voice yeah uh, <laughs> so. i mean uh, the stephen colbert without a laugh track has been fascinating yeah um mm -hmm. and he can really pull it off he's just his timing is so, so precise yeah. you know you can and see I, that actually with you can see that with snl the first time they did it the second time they did it um well they did some experiments on the first time where they had some people at home laughing with it and the next week they decide not to do it but what they did was interesting in in the um in those in the, um, the news section of their show, uh, Weekend Update, they actually, the jokes uh, ramped up more. Like they they yeah. were on more on top. They weren't waiting for a laugh. They weren't doing, and it was really interesting to watch how they adapted their jokes. Um, again, it's a different type of joke telling when you don't have an audience and you don't give it that space. Yeah, um, and yeah. so us as an audience also has to like laugh, but then keep listening. And so it's a, it's a different experience. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, 
I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm thinking now about um, also some of the shows like the uh, Barack Obama commencement uh, graduation Mm -hmm. um, show that LeBron James produced. And... uh, other ones I've seen where they are able to also integrate and sequence together musicians who are all in their different rooms together. And, you know, and it ends up looking like uh, the opening of the Brady Bunch meets <laughs> like Hollywood Squares, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I can see the cast of like In the Heights and a Hollywood Squares sort of scenario, like totally. doing their doing their thing. And have you guys been, you know, keeping up with is the cast, you know, zooming together and talking about the fate of the film and or you know what's the yeah, well, we have we have a group text that we all it goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever so <laughs> that's like 24 7 going i told them you know via text um and also some phone calls if anyone wanted to talk about when we got pushed to help explain what was going on before they read it in the press um, also actually even like the week before I talked to them as we were having the discussion, just so that they knew that we're not taking this lightly. Cause you know, when you push a year, it changes their lives for a year. Uh, yeah. they're expecting to build off of this movie and of now course. it's on pause for a year. So it yeah. affects real people's lives. So, uh, but, and then, and then we do zooms. Um, we had a crazy rich Asians like live tweet session. And while we were doing the live tweet session, we had a private zoom with, all the cast and that was really fun because we actually haven't a lot we have we also have a whatsapp group for crazy rich Asians that is nutty um with our crew and cast um but to see everybody again and also everyone's on different parts of the world so some people it was like three in the morning that was that was really fun but it, it we, because we have this time it really allowed us to touch base again um which is really um yeah i don't take that for granted at all no i mean you're kind of in the morale business right now you know, I'm just yeah. trying to keep people's uh, dreams alive um, yeah. uh, until next summer. And, you know, next summer, quote, unquote, we don't know what that's even going <laughs> to hold, right? Um, exactly. Um, but, I mean, there is this sort of shadow, uh, and you hear it, you know, you'll, you hear anything nowadays. You know, people, there's the optimists, there's the apocalypticists, if that's a word. <laughs> um, you know, will there be theaters after this? Like, are people going to want to go into theaters again? Or maybe they're going to be masked up the entire time. You can't eat your popcorn correctly. <laughs> um, you know, have you heard, have people had these discussions amongst each other about what's the fate of how our, you know, of of the theater experience? On my side, uh, yeah, for sure, absolutely. That's not um, that's not being ignored. What is the fate of, of of the theater experience? But I am on the side of we are the theater experience, so we're making it. We're going to make it work, and we're going to give reasons for people to come out, and um, and we're going to be safe about it, of course. And to me, theaters, uh, the movie theater experience, while it may evolve. Um, I don't think it ever, I don't think it ever goes away. There's, there's the community experience. It's like sports. Like you want to get out and you want to be with people and you want to experience this dream in the dark together. So you all can talk about it and debate about it afterwards. Like, I don't think that ever goes away. Um, How and what prices and uh, what, is it going to be the same as before? No. And I just think, uh, but I but I do think that um, 
cinema has a very big role to play in our culture um has always will will be and there's big stories to tell and those are really important um to for us all as uh, as as a world to learn about each other and have empathy for each other and see stories that we aren't you that that aren't that we aren't used to seeing every day i think it's a huge key to unifying um the world as it always has been um and not just again in your home looking at it by yourself but actually like being also with people to do that yeah i have to believe in that i can't not give up i can't give up on that dream and so our job is to give reasons for it to exist yeah man i uh i'm with you and uh you know we need that that sense of um of hope and and thinking out ahead about and 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 frankly to your point i mean as we sit here and we grasp in the dark trying to grab wrap our arms around the new storyline that none of us understands it's going to be exactly your world, your art form, that is going to give us both interpretation and understanding, but also some sort of exorcism, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, emotional kind of um, uh, expression around around all this and, make, and have us understand what we've been going through. Right? Yeah, it's a valve that allows us to connect with each other. Like just to say, you're not alone in those feelings. And, but there is light. Like we, Myron and I always talk about like, we need to take the audience into hell and then guide them out step by step to show that there's light. And, um, and, and, and the reason why Myron and I, you know, we first started working on crazy rotations together and then we haven't stopped working together since then. But, um, but with that one and within the Heights and with home before dark, it was always like, now our movies it's really hard to go back for us because now our movies need to have purpose they need to have a real reason to exist that's bigger than ourselves and so whether that's the fight for truth and journalism in home before dark for apple tv or um this uh the story of america through this uh block in washington heights um in in the heights or um an asian american going to asia for the first time and trying to find her self-worth her um, sort of going through this cultural identity crisis. To me, those things are movies that um, can only be made by people who really needed to get made, who really wanted to get made, because we had to push every lever to get it through the system. Um, and also uh, helps the audience see a world that maybe they haven't seen before. It gives a little bit of understanding. So that, in a weird way, this pandemic shelter in place um, only reaffirms kind of uh, are the type of movies that Myron and I want to make together um, because it's because uh, we, we as we see we only have a certain amount of time on this planet and we only have a certain um, we got to get people out uh, to confront each other otherwise we're all gonna hate each other so <laughs> yeah yeah well you know I I've recently been thinking about um, you know, on the silver lining, optimistic side of the ledger, that yeah. this this virus is, uh, you know, it's the one thing that everybody on the earth can now relate to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we were uh, the whole sort of fate of our of our world was everybody was sort of retrenching into these nationalistic, bordered up kind of worldview, and the kind of uh, but suddenly we all have one big story, 
that we're yeah. involved in. Um, and and haven't we always known that? Like, what's crazy about movies? It's like, you know, everyone's like, "Well, no one could have predicted this." No one could. And you look at movies, you're like, "I think every movie predicted an alien invasion at some point, <laughs> where the world had to like suddenly come together." <laughs> like, that's part of the big epic story. And that all the world's borders didn't matter anymore. Humans had to come together and we are being attacked by an alien. It's just not from above. It's from within. And I just think that like, we are actually living that. That is yeah. crazy to me. It <laughs> is. It is truly crazy. It's almost, yeah, we're definitely living in this, uh, in a Hollywood um, dystopia. So you have to um, maybe change the narrative from the Hollywood mm. side <laughs> and reverse engineer this whole well, thing. Well, humans conquer. Humans do will yeah. conquer. <laughs> Guys, um, it's really been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming to Inside the Hive. John Chu, Myron Kirstein, the team that brought you Crazy Rich Asians and are going to bring you In the Heights, a film that, frankly, uh, I personally could use right now. Uh, it's so full of so much optimism <laughs> and joy. Um, but hopefully we'll get it and maybe there'll be some work around where we can uh, get a look at it sooner rather than later. But thank you both for coming. I'm, I'm just really grateful to have you and, uh, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. I'd like to thank my guests, John Chu and Myron Kirstein, and of course my co-host Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And thanks to the folks at Cadence 13, especially our producer, Bob Tabador. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. We'll see you next week. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.